Hello, it's Wednesday, 5th of July. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bauman and I will discuss the top travel and tourism talking points in the first half of 2023. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So, we've moved into the second half of 2023, and the battle to attract travelers is now highly competitive across the region. We've just completed the first full half year of travel in the region since 2019. So what were the key issues and the vital takeaways and learnings? Hannah and I have put together a list of the top 10 talking points from January through June 2023. So let's dive in. And uh, where should we start, Hannah? Well, Thailand is always a good one, isn't it? I think we, uh, we, we do love to talk about Thailand. And it's big news for Thailand, you know. Um, by mid-June, they have announced that they have now had over 12.46 million international travellers. So they've actually surpassed 2022's full year numbers, which was around 11.8 million. So they're, they're there. I mean, they're targeting, depending which media you read, between 25 million to 30 million. Um, so 12.46 million, yeah, they're, you know, double that. They could hit 24 million kind of conservatively. Yeah, travel and tourism around the region really has revol- revolved really about what's happening in Thailand, hasn't it? It's, it's probably been the fastest in terms of restoring capacity from some of its key markets. As you say, it, it surpassed its annual total from 2022 already within six months of the first year. And now I guess the anxiety starts. You start reading in the media about whether you know, enough Chinese tourists are going to arrive this year to, to meet the full target, as you said, of around about, well, whatever it is, 25, 30 million. Uh, they've set a target of up to 30, 35 million for next year. So still a long way short of, of what 20, 2019 was, which was what, around about 40 million, um, but certainly on the road to recovery. But it does seem very much as though you know, Thailand was the first country in the region to reanimate tourism and it's leading the way once again and everybody is looking to it to see you know what moves it makes Uh, there's some of the issues that we'll talk about going forward it's got a new government a new tourism minister there'll be new tourism policies uh, and how that will impact in the second half of the year yeah for sure i think the the political situation is the one that we need to keep an eye on just to see how it impacts and like you said gary right now it's interesting because in q2 the tourism confidence index actually dropped versus q1 and I think a lot of that is around the uncertainties, the political uncertainties, the bar dropping. Um, but whatever happens, I'm sure they're going to be one of the strongest players that come out from Southeast Asia this year. Yeah, and I guess there's also that sort of feeling that you, you start to feel around a lot of the conferences that we've been to that, you know, this initial wave of pent up demand could now be starting to drag a little bit. You know, people have made their initial trips. Um, airfares aren't really dropping that much. As you say, currencies uh, across the region are, are lower in value, which makes travel a little bit more expensive. And then there's the China issue, which we'll come to in a moment. Exactly. So let's leave Thailand then and move on to aviation recovery. So where are we right now, Gary, in terms of aviation recovery? Are we back to 2019 levels? Well, this is the point, isn't it? Are we back to 2019 levels? And actually, should we be ahead of 2019 levels? I mean, that's the key thing. I mean, I think there is a, a growing recognition that the 2019 barometer, at some point, we have to drop that because, you know, the region would have grown over the past four years. And actually going back to 2019 suggests that, okay, airlines are probably level on capacity to where they were. They're probably higher in terms of yield because prices are higher and they're, uh, you know, they're filling their planes. 
and tend to be flying uh, narrow bodies as well. Um, and in terms of the overall capacity, I mean, there's a lot of data that's coming out, and there's some good data just come out from OAG, Hannah. Let's uh, let's let's go through that. Yes, and uh, we we love a good OAG reference there. Fantastic. So in terms of Southeast Asia capacity in June, um, in total, there's about 36 million seats, which is 17% below where we were in 2019, June 2019, but actually 24% up on June 2022. I mean, you know, June 2022 was, was pretty low, so it doesn't take much to be up on that, I think. Um, in terms of the split between domestic and international. Domestic, as you would imagine, is recovering a lot faster. So that's down about 14% versus June. International capacity is still down about 23%, but it has grown 119% since June 2022. Yeah, and, and this is where I guess as, as we move through the period of recovery, particularly towards the end of this year, we'll actually be looking at capacity and how valuable capacity actually is as a metric. You know, a lot of airlines are going to be talking by the end of this year of hitting 80, 90, perhaps even 100 percent of their 2019 capacity. But that's capacity. That's not the actual number of seats that they're selling. And I think one of the issues in the moment in, in China in particular is that capacity is increasing. Um, but passenger loads aren't probably as high or anywhere near as high as they were in 2019. So. You know, that's being made up in terms of the airline figures because of their revenues. They are earning more money, they're charging higher fares, um, but the seats aren't as full as they were before. So when you actually look at the arrivals figures uh, at some of the destinations in our, in our region, I guess Thailand is a very, very good example. A lot of planes are flying in, you know, air, airline capacity is improving, um, but the actual visitor numbers are lower, and that's because the planes aren't full. Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, I, I think in Southeast Asia, Generally, a lot of the airlines do have quite a high load factor. But of course, you know, and as Brett Henry was saying in our podcast last week as well, you know, we're going to see airlines adding back those frequencies, probably adding in back more capacity, as he said, as airlines are greedy and, and they want that. And um, inevitably then, as you say, Gary, is yes, you've got all those planes, but are they actually full? Yeah. And then you look at the, the various different airline markets that we have in the region. They are very, very different. And there's another graph which we'll put up in our show notes, uh, which, which OEG produced this week, which is the total seat capacity in the different countries. And obviously, you would expect this, that uh, Indonesia is way out in front. It's the largest country in our region, has the largest air market. And obviously, that is bolstered by its large domestic capacity. So it, it's around about 10.5 million seats in June this month were available for passengers. Um, that compares to uh, Vietnam, which was in second, and then we have Thailand, and then we have Malaysia. Indonesia is probably about double the size of the Malaysian air market. You know, that kind of shows you just the regional diversification that we have here. But then when you compare that to the busiest airports, well, you know, obviously Jakarta is the number one, um, because again, that, that relies on its international its domestic. But Singapore is very, very close. And that is a very interesting factor, of course, because Singapore doesn't have uh, domestic aviation sector. Yeah, that's a great point. And even if you're looking at, in terms of recovery, um, Vietnam has now surpassed 2019 levels um, in terms of total seat capacity, whereas the other markets I don't think have quite reached that yet. So looking at the two things that I guess stand out from the first half of the year, Hannah, is Thailand, the number one market, the most visited country in the region. We would have expected that. That's the way things were happening at the end of the 2010s. It was uh, leading the region and probably accelerating its lead in the region. It looks like it's going to be doing that again. The aviation recovery looks to be on, on course in some metrics, perhaps not in others, um, but certainly compared to where we were a year ago, uh, it's looking a lot, lot brighter. The only way is up, I think. <laughs> 
So let's move on. I mean, we've kind of touched this a little bit already talking about China um, just now. But I think what we've really seen in the first half of the year is really this interplay between the Chinese inbound market, the Indian inbound market, even the Russian um, inbound market and the differences that that has and the, the impact that China reopening has, has made on the Southeast Asian tourism industry, hasn't it? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you, you, you go back to when we started this podcast, you know, three years, three and a half years ago when borders were closed. And over those two years where borders were closed, there was a lot of talk about, you know, how will destinations, hotels, airlines target these different mega markets, you know, India and China, both very, very intrinsic to the region. Obviously, before the pandemic, China was just so much more important. I think it had about five times as many visitors into ASEAN than India. Then the tourism boards were promoting very heavily to different Indian markets. Russia has come into the equation in a different way than it was before the pandemic. I think, you know, we did see a lot of Russian travelers coming into Vietnam, Thailand in particular, Philippines, um, but they tended to be during the winter months. And we've seen, I think, during this half of the year, it's been extended, you know, as in Phuket uh, in May, a lot of Russians there, a lot of Russians were transiting also from Phuket through KL to, to Bali which shows that, that that season from uh, Russia is more extended than it was before. And then we've obviously seen this very, very gradual and progressive recovery from China, which for the first few months was quite slow, seems to be kicking on now, particularly into destinations like Thailand. And, and, and I guess also with India and China in particular, they have different public holidays as well. And public holidays is very, very important to, to travel into our region. So these patterns are still just redeveloping. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and when you talk about Russia, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think for, you know, perhaps our European listeners, um, the, the fact that Russian tourists are coming in is almost unimaginable. But Southeast Asia has, you could argue, kind of played a a good hand here in that they have kept it open. They've, they've kept Russian tourists um, be made to be very welcome. So if you're looking in terms of um, kind of January to April, arrivals, if we look at Indonesia, Russia has actually now surpassed 2019 arrivals. You know, they're at about 113% of those 2019 levels. Um, for Thailand, they're at about 94%. The interesting one actually is Vietnam, where Russia is only, it's at a much, much lower level of 2019 levels than you would expect around 16%, which is um, yeah, surprising given those links actually between Vietnam and Russia, and particularly as Vietnam first reopened, we were seeing lots of news articles around Russian tourists coming in. But for some reason, that doesn't seem to be really happening um, anymore. Um, but you're quite right, Gary, about China. Um, and despite the fact that it is low levels, you know, China now is in the top five source markets for most of the inbound markets for Southeast Asia, despite the fact that it is only at those really, really low levels of 2019 recovery. So it kind of shows that there's so much more um, movement to go, right? As they add back the capacity, as they come up, how much more elasticity is there? Yeah, and the key for the China market, particularly into Thailand, is the speed of the turnaround of visas. That, that's really helping that market. Um, and also the, the capacity, as you said there, I, mean, I wrote in my newsletter, Asia Travel Reset, at the weekend that I was in Bangkok last weekend and I was looking at the, the, the departures board at Don Muang Airport. And on a Sunday, which you know, a busy day for travel in and out of Thailand, there were flights during the daytime period to 13 different cities in China, but only four in India. And I think that tells a real story of how China over the past 10 years has been able to increase capacity from different cities across its country into Thailand. And that still hasn't happened yet from, from India. Absolutely. So let's move on then. And you just touched on this again nicely, Gary, you've led into this about visas and how Thailand's relatively easy visa scheme has 
you know, boosted these Chinese tourists. But we've seen a lot, haven't we, in the first half of this year, lots of talk around visas. So Vietnam has changed its visa policies. Um, Indonesia is looking um, at perhaps increasing the fee. They've removed the visa on arrival. Why do you think there are all these moves? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, one of the things that often gets talked about in our region is that, you know, tourism and travel are so centrally dominated. They are very, very state driven. And, you know, the, the policies have been quite slow to evolve through COVID. The borders open later. Visa processes in some countries have been quite slow. Um, but not alone in that. I mean, you look at Europe and Europe is having a lot of problems. You, you talk to any Chinese tour operator trying to get visas for its group to go into European countries and they're stacked up through the rest of the year. Um, and we've, I think we've discussed this in the podcast earlier in the year about Indonesian tour operators having the same problem in Europe, um, getting visa access. So it's a kind of global issue, really. Uh, look at the US, you know, it's been very, very difficult for some to, uh, nationalities to get a, a visa into the US. So it's not just Southeast Asian issue. This is a global issue. But in a region that where travel and tourism is so media front and center, and where talk is about the economic recovery driven by tourism, you would have expected that, that visa processes could have been uh, accelerated, I think. Yeah, I mean, you make a great point about the media and it's, it's something that we keep talking about, don't we? Like, why don't they think these things through before they start um, announcing things to the media? The case in point, um, this whole idea that Indonesia may increase their visa on arrival fee um, by three times. But it's just an idea, right? But these are the things that get picked up in the Western press. These are the kind of things that impact um, on arrivals and people suddenly start to think, oh, well, actually, do I want to go? Um, the same as this this whole Indonesia revoking the visa on arrival. Um, I mean, and this was a news story that came up a few weeks ago. And yes, they've revoked it, but it hasn't actually changed anything right now since they've reopened since the pandemic, because it's just been the same policy. They've just officially removed something that they did for a little while before the pandemic but it gets picked up again and, and people suddenly are like oh there's this you know I, there's no visa on arrival you can but you just have to pay that fee may increase um at least though vietnam have now made this um decision to change their visa policy though and that's been something that the vietnamese tourism industry has really been looking for so they've now um, extended the validity of v visas from 30 to 90 days um, citizens from some Western European countries, Japan, Korea, can visit without a visa for 45 days. So that's up from 30 days. And there's multi-entry as well. So they are making it easier. And this is something that the industry has been crying out for and that the government has been humming and hawing about for months. So at least we see some kind of positive progress there for Vietnam. Yeah. And as we discussed on the podcast as well before, Hannah, there's been issues in Malaysia as well about uh, visa on arrival for, for certain markets, particularly key markets like India and China. There was a lot of debate about that at the beginning of the year. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a region wide issue. But, you know, you just would have expected now one year after reopening that these things would have been sorted out a long time ago. You would have done. But I think we've we've learned that that's not always the case with Southeast Asia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's move closer to home then for us, um, to Malaysia. Um, and this is, of course, Penang's ban on short-term rental stays in residential accommodation. Um, what do you think triggered this, Gary? That's a really important distinction that you make there, that it's in residential accommodation, because you tend to see the media just saying there's this blanket ban on short-term rentals. It's not in actually the case. You know, service residences, those kinds of uh, buildings can still... 
uh, operate as short-term rentals, uh, which obviously pushes uh, the Airbnb sector into the mainstream. You know, there's going to be hotels that, are, that run these service residences. What do I think triggered it? Well, the media says that this is about rowdy tourism, which, you know, that's a smokescreen. We know it's got nothing to do with that. The interesting thing about this is this has been on the agenda for quite a long time. Penang has been talking about this for quite a long time. And actually here in Kuala Lumpur, you know, there are quite a few uh, residential condominium units that actually don't permit short-term rental stays by, by people that own the, the apartments there. So there is talk now, and it seems as though it's ramping up, that Malaysia is looking towards actually making this national policy and Airbnb had a sort of preemptive press release, uh, an press event, I think a couple of weeks ago, where they were talking that we need to moderate this policy. The issue is, is multifaceted. We know that in countries around the world that short-term rentals do have a detrimental impact on rents for local people, on uh, the concentrations of tourists and that kind of thing. But this issue is, is a strange one. And you would have to say that if you implement this on a national basis, um, you're A, reducing your stock of accommodation, you're B, reducing the options for travellers, and three, quite simply, you're going to push up hotel rates. Is that the reason for doing this? It's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great summary, I think, of what's going on. And it, it just always comes down to this tension, doesn't it, right now, between the fact that the, the kind of incumbent tourism industries in the country see these um, online players as not having to follow the same regulations and rules that they do, maybe not having to pay the same taxes um, as they do, and therefore they see that the the playing field is, is made very uneven. And I think this has just been made worse by the pandemic, where budget hotels have been suffering because rates have come down before you know five star hotels are being sold at four star rates, four star at three star, and it pushes down and down and down, and it gets to the point. Well, why would you stay in a a two star hotel if you could afford to stay in a three star, or if you wanted to stay in an Airbnb? So these guys are really suffering. Their occupancy rates are still not returning to what they were pre pandemic, and I think they they are just looking at any ways that they can to encourage people to use their services. And a lot of lobbying, I think, is going on to governments right now. Yeah, I think, and I think there's there's a huge assumption being made as well that if you remove the short-term rental from the market, that people will automatically then transfer to, to budget accommodation. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, it, economically, there is also a big elephant in the room, and that's the fact that second ownership of properties is, is a long-term element of the economy here. People do, do buy second properties. They used to be because they believed that the value of the property would increase and that would be something they could bequeath to their sons and daughters in future. But more recently, it's because as a second-term property you can use to, to, to rent it out um, on short-term rentals. And the impact potentially of removing that option on the property sector is quite worrying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you, you were saying about KL condos and some of them banning um, short-term rentals. That's the case in the condo where I am right now. Um, and you, you you feel for those owners who bought their, their apartments just with that in mind, right, to to rent it out, short-term rentals, um, and then suddenly have this, this new ruling by the condo committee saying, sorry, you can't do that anymore. And what do you do with that? You know, it's it, it's tricky. So moving on from short-term rentals to Taylor Swift. <laughs> I'm sure, Gary, you're, you're a big fan of. Um, but I, I, I think what's been very interesting in the region um, over the past couple of months is really this concert mania, right? June has just been all about concerts. It's been about Coldplay. It's been about Taylor Swift. We've seen concerts from Blackpink um, in Vietnam. Um, and it seems that Singapore is, is winning out right now, aren't they? 
Yeah, well, actually, I am a big Taylor Swift fan, I have to say. But um, in terms of where this is going, this this is a hot topic. It's a very 2023 topic. It's such a zeitgeist around now. So Singapore has managed to set up concerts by two of the world's biggest stars, Coldplay and Taylor Swift. Six concerts each at the National Stadium in the early 2024. I think one is in January and one is in March next year. Tickets for Taylor Swift go on sale today, so there's going to be huge news around that. The interesting factor about this is that Singapore has been promoting this as you know tourism because a lot of people from around the region want to buy tickets to go and see these two megastars. As you said, also we've had uh, Blackpink quite recently, Jackie Chung from Hong Kong, um, and, and Singapore is promoting itself as a, as a concert destination, quite rightly so. Also during the F1 concert season, it, it has big concerts as well, so you know it, it can do that. The interesting thing with Taylor Swift is that this is her only destination in Southeast Asia. She is playing, I think, four concerts in Tokyo. She's playing, I think, 10 concerts in, in Australia. Coldplay are playing in other destinations, aren't they? They're playing in Bangkok, they're playing one in KL. They're also playing in the Philippines and Jakarta as well. But the buzz is around Singapore. And the interesting thing is because they've got the most uh, shows because they, they will attract most tourists from the regions to come and see those shows. And also there's a, a strong marketing element there. I was reading, there's a good story uh, that was published yesterday by Courts that UOB Bank um, is actually able to to sell some of the pre-sale tickets to its bank to its bank credit card owners, and it's seen a spike um, in applications for for, for for cards because they you know you can get early access to Taylor Swift tickets. So there's so many multi layers to this. It is, and it, it's going to be fascinating, I think, to see how this really impacts room occupancies um, next year in Singapore. And we know already, you know, that the ADR, the average daily rate for Singapore hotels, is is really at some of the highest levels that it's been. Um, there have already been some news that room rates at some three to four star hotels in Singapore have increased by over 20% for the dates of, of Taylor Swift's concerts in Singapore. And we saw this last year with for the F1 as well, didn't we? We see that in September, that's what really drove these room rates up. And I think it's leading to a lot of uh, regret and soul searching from other countries as well. You know, Indonesia has been saying we need to to streamline how our digital processes are and the approval process for this. I think Malaysia has come under fire as well. People questioning how easy it is for overseas performers to be approved to play here. But it's it's a like you say, it's a 2023 story. It's something that definitely we haven't seen in the last few years since we've been on the pod. So it's interesting. It's really interesting, this. Yeah, and I think that the 2023 story side to it, particularly in terms of Taylor Swift, I mean, this is the first time that she's toured for five years, and it's been a similar impact in the US. You know, there's been Taylor Swift mania to try and get the tickets. Uh, but the, 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 real, the real interesting factor is that she's putting on six shows in Singapore, so a Coldplay. But then going forward, how sustainable is that? Are there many international stars that could actually fill that stadium for six shows year on year, there's probably only, what, I don't know, a couple of handfuls of, uh, of megastars that could do that every year. Um, but if you could attract them every year, like you said. You're sorted then, aren't you, right? <laughs> um, all right, so from Singapore to the Philippines, and it's a kind of dual story for the Philippines. So, of course, the, the big controversy, <laughs> the big news over the last week has been all about how it's more fun in the Philippines has been replaced with love the Philippines. But it has not been a very straightforward uh, launch, has it, Gary? <laughs> no, far from it, particularly with the issue that some of the imagery that was used in the promotion was actually shot in other countries, which is quite bizarre um, and, and almost indefensible. The changing, we've discussed the changing of the actual tagline and the promotion before from It's More Fun in the Philippines to Love Philippines. And 
maybe it was just time, you know, maybe refreshing should actually be done more often by, by tourism brands now. You know, you're, particularly when you're trying to attract younger travelers who are very emotionally connected, want to feel more about the destination. They want change. You know, they, everything in, in the TikTok era moves day by day by day, right? And so if you're seeing the same tagline year after year, it just looks very, very staid. I understand why the Philippines have done it. I understand why they've really gone for that colorful, visual, kind of visually engaging, emotionally engaging approach. There will always be different opinions about marketing. That's just the nature of marketing. Um, but from a personal perspective, I, I think it's very successful. And I hope it works. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it. I think there's always that question. I think particularly now as we're coming out of the pandemic is one, like you say, you need to have this kind of refresh of the brand. And I, I think that's a long time coming. But you also need to balance that with, OK, well, could these funds be given to improve the tourism infrastructure? instead, which is something that Philippines really desperately needs, or could it be used to support smaller players to upskill tourism workers? So there, there is always going to be this tension, right, between the marketing side and the actual the, the product side, the, the people on the ground who need that support. But it, it was uh, fun, fun, fun to watch the story play out as you, you knew it would. Every time these things launch, like you say, Gary, there, there is always controversy, everybody weighs in with different opinions. And uh, there's always something. And in the modern era, that's almost the point, isn't it? You generate as much media controversy as you can, get everybody talking on social media, that you can't really get any, any bad publicity on this. You know, people will always put their views forward, um, but it just keeps generating this buzz. So, yeah, well done to them. Um, and so moving on to the other Philippine story, which is really um, one that we have not really seen across the region, actually, and in, in, in any other country, I would say. And this is the airlines in the Philippines really seem to be under a lot of pressure um, right now. Um, particularly from the government, to sort their operations out. We've seen lots of um, cancellations. There's alleged overbookings. Um, the Senate there has investigated Cebu Pacific after compiling over 3,000 uh, passenger complaints on social media against them. Um, and the airlines are trying to, to defend themselves, both Cebu Pacific and Philippine Airlines, saying, look, you know, we've got issues around maintenance. We've got issues around not having enough flights on, about not having enough planes on standby. Um, they're scrambling basically to lease planes. They're scrambling to get planes back up in the air. And Cebu Pacific have even said that they're planning to reduce some of its scheduled flights until Q3 so that they can really get a handle on this. So it's, it's, it feels like it's a bit all over the place. And it's surprising that we haven't seen this actually in other countries, right? Yeah, you preempted me there, Hannah. We're going to come in a moment to some of the, the top talking points that we think are going to happen in the second half of the year. And this is certainly one of them. I don't think the Philippines is going to be alone on this. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It has been uh, a topic of conversation because the, the avi aviation sector there is going through these regrowing pains, I guess. Um, but something to watch for sure. So next pick um, around high-speed rail. What's been happening there, Gary? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an infrastructure topic that we knew was coming, I think, during the pandemic. We were waiting for all these, the, these announcements that are happening. The big story, of course, is that is in, in August, that Indonesia will have the first high-speed railway line in, in our region um, from Jakarta to Bandung. It's supposed to open at the end of uh, August, and this is built and operated by Chinese uh, high-speed rail companies. It will become a national landmark. It will become a huge tourism attraction. It will also make it easier for business travel between the two cities, those kinds of things. That's the whole point of high-speed rail. But off the back of this, you know, we have been talking for a long time that China wants to build this route through Southeast Asia from its own border down to, right down to Singapore. And we started to see a lot of different announcements this year. So there, you know, there's a, a reanimation of the possible Kuala Lumpur to Singapore uh, high-speed railway talk about Bangkok to, to Kuala Lumpur, 
Vietnam wants to be connected to China directly, Cambodia as well. So we're going to see a lot more of these announcements. The thing is with high-speed railways, they are huge projects. They take a long time to actually get off the ground. They take massive amounts of funding. They do destroy the natural landscapes, um, but ultimately they make countries more connected. But I mean, the, the, the difference with uh, high-speed railway in our region is that we tend to just be looking at single route lines so through a country. Um, but if you look at where it really, really works, like in, in countries like Japan or in China, you know, they, they network the whole country. They don't just run straight through a country. And that's where, where the value actually comes from. Yeah, you're right. So, I mean, of course, you know, a Jakarta-Bandung uh, route is going to help that, that, you know, get people from point A to point B. But how does it help beyond that? A little bit unclear like now, and unless you're building that whole network, which we know takes years and years, decades, money and everything else. But it's interesting that at least we're starting to see that a few more steps um, in the right direction, I think. So our last pick before we talk about what we think are going to be the, you know, the talking points for, for the second half of the year is around finally Malaysia and Indonesia have dropped their kind of states of COVID emergency. They've, they've dropped their face mask mandates. So for Malaysia, it's actually from today. Previously, you still had to wear it on public transport uh, in medical facilities. So that's gone now. Um, I'm sure we will still see many people wearing face masks around because it just seems to be the culture here. And on the 21st of June, um, Jokowi in Indonesia officially lifted that pandemic status for COVID-19 as well. So transitioning to the endemic phase. So I think now pretty much all countries, I think Philippines is still an exception, are in this endemic phase. We're endemic now, Gary, finally. Yeah. And I think as we've discussed before, Hannah, to listeners around the world, particularly in North America and in Europe, they're, they're probably quite amazed that this is, this is still only happening right now. But the thing that you just said is quite right, is that, you know, this in Malaysia, this uh, lifting of the mandate comes into place today. I just taken a, a grab car uh, and my driver asked me if I have a mask on. And, and walking around malls here, I would say it's, I don't know, what do you say, 40%, 60% right now? But a lot of people still are, and people are still socially distancing. I noticed that even in, you know, when you're standing in the line in the supermarket, it's, it's become endemic to, to actually socially distance and wear a mask. Yeah, you're right. You know, um, my, my auntie here won't go out to eat in restaurants still. She's not gone out to eat in a restaurant for about three years because she's still worried. Um, about COVID. So it, it is kind of ingrained in us now. Endemic. I like that. So Gary, let's round it off then. In six months time, what do you think we're going to be talking about at the top talking points from uh, the second half of 2023? I guess in terms of where we are at after the first half of the year, you know, we will be, everybody will be talking about capacity levels, visitor numbers, and whether we're on targets in different countries to meet the set targets, whether those targets get revised up or down. You know, that's going to be a huge talk over the rest of the year. Um, the airport issues, I think, is something that we may have to look out for, particularly as we see more Chinese travelers coming in during the summer holidays and then maybe in October and towards the back end of the year. I think the issue with Chinese travelers this year, as opposed to previous years, is the fact that it's very difficult for them to travel longer haul at the moment because of the visa issues into the US. Not, there's no flights into the US hardly. Uh, in Europe, the, the visa issues are stacked up. So more travelers will be coming into Southeast Asia, into Japan and Korea as well, Australia. Are the airports ready for that? You know, we know that there are resource shortages. We know um, that on the ground, operations aren't moving as, as smoothly as they did before. Is that going to be a big issue? Yeah, that's a great point, isn't it? I mean, so on the one hand, of course, it's great for Southeast Asia that they could potentially get this volume of Chinese travelers. But are we just going to see how, you know, the, the, the 2022 summer that Europe went through where everything was was chaos um, and even 
over the US, I think over their, their bank holiday weekend just recently. But still, I think we saw a lot of cancellations and things. Um, for me, I think we'll be talking about um, haze. When I, I think we've talked about this before. Of course, we had the bad haze issues in Northern Thailand and in Laos in April. But there's been lots of warnings from Singapore that haze is coming again. I can see that this could be a big issue. Yeah, that's very true. We're in the dry season now um, and the burning will start in the fields in Malaysia and Indonesia and that will impact both countries and also for Singapore as well. It's, it's an issue um, that we've been waiting for and we're kind of a little bit surprised it hasn't happened by now. Um, but I think that's because the rains have uh, sort of extended longer than anybody was expecting. Yeah, but certainly if they come, it will be interesting to see how that impacts, say, the Singapore F1, if that coincides at the same time in September, you know, this big flagship event. And if it's murky weather, terrible air pollution outside, is that going to impact it? Hard to say, right? What other issues do you see on the horizon, Gary? Well, the, the, lingering, the lingering issue is airfares, isn't it? What's going to happen to airfares? As we see more capacity across the region, more routes and more frequencies, will intra-regional airfares come down? They have started to moderate, it does seem. But if you're flying to Europe at the moment, the prices are just incredible, up to three times um, more than it was before the pandemic, just for economy class. Yeah, it's crazy. And of course, this impacts, you know, outbound group travel, they can't get the seats. Um, and the fares are really expensive, so it, it makes it very difficult. One that, you know, Gary, you, you talked about earlier is should we be using 2019 as that benchmark level anymore, perhaps as we get to the end of this year? Can we finally shake that, do you reckon? I don't think we will, because I don't think we're going to be anywhere near in terms of visitor numbers, in terms of airline capacities. We're still going to be a long way short of 2019. So this is going to extend into 2024. I was talking to a couple of executives from Chinese OTAs last week. Uh, they don't expect the recovery in China to, to, to hit 2019 levels until at least middle of 2025. So I think this is going to go on and on. China is slightly exceptional to Southeast Asia because it opened later. Um, but of course, it impacts our region so so much. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. We might be talking about how East Timor has joined ASEAN. That could be interesting. Instead of 10, we have 11 members. Um, it'd be nice to talk a little bit more about East Timor. So if, you, if you're an expert in East Timor, reach out to us. We'd, we'd love to have you on the show and find out more about the, the country. Yeah, that one's gone a little bit quiet, hasn't it? The, the Indonesian uh, presidency of, of, of ASEAN, we thought that this might be on the agenda. I guess there are just so many other issues in ASEAN at the moment right now. But yeah, I mean, East Timor as the 11th member uh, has been long anticipated, particularly if you're in East, East Timor. But will it happen this year? I, I actually have no idea. Right, yeah, no, it's, it's it's kind of a bit quiet. I think they have a. I think the next ASEAN meeting is actually next week in KL. Um, so maybe we'll see some news coming out of that. But as you say, I suspect it would just be dominated by uh, Myanmar instead, as it tends to be and should be, rightly so. What else could be a hot talking point? Currencies. I think we've seen the Thai baht, um, as you were saying, Gary, weaken. It's at its lowest levels, I think, in eight months. A Malaysian ringgit has really, uh, really depreciated against the euro, against the USD, against the Sing dollar, against the pound, um, which you could argue is going to be good for Malaysian inbound tourism. But, you know, right now, Malaysia is one of the top markets outbound within Southeast Asia as well, particularly for countries like Singapore uh, is, is one of the top ones. Is that going to be the case now that the ringgit has weakened so much? I'm not sure. So it'll be interesting to see how these, these currency depreciations impact on that, that flow of tourists. 
Yeah, with regard to Malaysia, I think we'll see more of what we've seen in the first half of the year, and that's more Malaysians going to Thailand because the two depreciating currencies, and that offsets a lot of the, va you know, the, the, the value losses that you get of going to Singapore at the moment is extremely expensive if you're from Malaysia. Uh, but you know, this isn't just uh, an issue between these two countries. New Zealand, Australia, those currencies have been struggling as well. Japan, something nearing an all-time low recently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's why Japan is really seeing this increase of US visitors, because for those travelers who Japan is on the bucket list, it's now a very, very affordable destination for them to travel to. So yeah, it's, it's definitely one to keep an eye on, I think, how these, these different currency depreciations are going to impact. So I think with that, that brings us to a close of our roundup for the first half of 2023. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but we'll be back soon to talk more Southeast Asian travel and tourism with you. See you then. Thank you.